We turn to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember, that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace." and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. The text that we consider this evening is Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Our 
The Apostle Paul in this chapter, beloved, is addressing the church at Ephesus, made up largely, if not exclusively, by Gentile Christians. Gentiles, like you and me, not Jews, Gentiles. And he has been explaining the wonder of our salvation, the wonder of God's grace. And now he comes to verse 11 and says, Wherefore, remember, by grace ye are saved, by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There was nothing in us that made us worthy of anything other than damnation. The apostle made that very clear in the opening verses of this chapter. But even when we were dead in sin, God hath quickened us together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that he might be glorified now and forever. Wherefore, remember, never forget your past. Bear in mind constantly the depths of the darkness and hopelessness from which you have been saved. Let it be clear in your own mind and a matter of deep humility that when God saved you, your salvation was absolutely impossible as far as you were concerned. By grace ye are saved. But not only was our state and condition in an, unsurpass, an unsurpassable obstacle to our salvation, that which the power of God alone could overcome, there was a second obstacle standing between us and membership in God's fellowship, in God's church. And that was our status or position in the economy of God. And when I use the term economy here, I'm not using it to refer to a system of economic activity, but to the established way that God had worked salvation all through the history of the Old Testament. That was another obstacle to the Gentiles. As the Apostle introduces this subject, we must bear in mind that it is his purpose that these Gentile believers truly grasp what a tremendous thing it is that they should ever be Christians and made members of the glorious body of Christ. The point of application is that you and I will never realize the greatness of God's power and the wonder of His grace also as revealed in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, unless we, unless we understand the greatness of the obstacles which that power has overcome. There are many today who see nothing special about being Christian. They claim the name. But there's nothing amazing about it, nothing awe-inspiring. In fact, Christianity is little more than a social movement. They were born into it. And the reason for their failure to view our salvation with any amazement is that they are spiritually ignorant of sin of that from which we have been saved. They don't realize spiritually the nature of the offense against God 
and the death into which our sin brought us. The apostle did understand. And he would have the Ephesian Christians understand as well. And the Spirit has preserved this for us. After having dealt with the insurmountable problem of sin and our spiritual death, after having shown the exceeding greatness of God's power to us who believe, he calls attention to this other obstacle which God alone could remove for our salvation. There had been no place in the economy of salvation for anyone who is not a Jew. That's what we must see in the words of this text. You who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel had no hope being without God in the world. But now you who were far off have been brought near, indeed have been embraced by God with that salvation that is only in Christ Jesus. And that again is the astounding reality that only the exceeding greatness of God's power could ever have brought about. So with that as our introduction tonight, we consider the text under the theme, Brought Near. We notice the historical separation, the insufferable misery, and the blessed salvation. The Apostle speaks here of the historical separation that had been seen throughout the history of the world. All throughout the Old Testament, salvation and membership in God's church was limited to the children of Israel. The church was identified with the commonwealth of Israel. In order for anyone outside Israel to be saved, they had to be made part of the commonwealth of Israel so that the distinction, the division really, between Jew and Gentile seemed absolute. Any talk about union seemed not only impossible, but it was directly contrary to the spiritual antithesis God had established between the two. It was exactly that division, in fact, to which Jesus had referred when the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, came to him begging his mercy and the healing of her daughter who was demon-possessed. And you remember, in that great test of her faith, Jesus said to her, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. Jews and dogs. That was the separation between the two. And the way the Jews viewed the nations around them. Still more, the Gentiles themselves were divided into especially two different classifications. Greeks and barbarians. You know where we would fall in that? In our heritage? no matter what part of Europe we may have come from. The Greeks were the educated people, the higher class. I don't know about your background, but I do know something about mine, and it didn't come from the higher class. The barbarians were the uneducated, illiterate people. And among the Gentiles, 
it seemed absolutely impossible that these two groups, who generally despised each other, could themselves be brought together and reconciled, still less that they could be found worshiping together and adoring the same God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But that astounding thing had been found true. So when Paul writes to the Colossians, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. But the emphasis in the text before us is on the fact that the salvation, which was strictly limited to Israel in time past, had now embraced them who were Gentiles. And the way the apostle develops this wonder of grace is most interesting. He immediately reminds the Ephesian Christians that they were, according to their place in history, Gentiles in the flesh. That was simply a fact. While the Jews had been marked by circumcision as a sign of the covenant of God, the Gentiles didn't have that mark in the flesh. And the apostle simply reminds them of that fact and and therefore of the importance of circumcision in the history of salvation. But he doesn't leave it at that. And while he's going to go on in the next verse to expand upon that historical importance of true circumcision and what it meant to be uncircumcised, he first makes kind of a parenthetical statement when he says concerning these Gentile believers that they had been marked as those who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And in this remark, the apostle alludes to the error that had become prevalent among the Jews. By their sinful pride, they had taken that matter of circumcision that wonderful doctrine, and they had corrupted it, turning it into a problem. By their departure from the teachings of the scriptures, they came to think that the only thing that mattered was that sign in their flesh. To them, the act of circumcision itself, the circumcision made by hands, had become their salvation. To put it in New Testament terms, it was to say, I've been baptized, I'm saved. They had misunderstood the very significance and purpose of circumcision as a sign and thus had created a barrier of pride that went beyond the spiritual separation that God had established, thinking only on the level of man's works, that which was done by man's hands. They held themselves apart, and they said, We are the circumcision, and all others are the uncircumcision. They had forgotten that circumcision was the gift of God to them, and that it was only a sign of the work of God that had to be performed in the heart. But the apostle calling attention to this as an aside while focusing on the fact that the church was strictly limited by God, points out that 
that church in the Old Testament was marked by the sign of circumcision. So for the Gentiles to become Christians, they had first to see a change in the whole economy of salvation. The distinction between Jew and Gentile was very real. We mustn't minimize it. We must not make light of it. After all, it was God himself who had separated Israel unto himself and who had introduced the sign of circumcision. To become a Christian, therefore, was to become partaker of what had been exclusively a religion for the Jews. It would be to break into this exclusive little realm Seeming a seemingly insurmountable problem, and indeed a problem that no man could overcome. And if you question how insurmountable an obstacle this could be, you simply have to look at the same division seen in the world today among the Arab nations and the Jews. Though there have been many attempts made at some semblance of peace and unity, never the two shall meet. And the reason, of course, as the Apostle makes clear, is that unity only comes in truth by the power of God wrought in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone has broken down that middle wall of partition between the two, reconciling both unto God. But ye were far off, says the apostle. This historical separation between Jew and Gentile was a legal separation. It had originated with the particular nature of God's covenant, which he established with the children of Israel exclusively. The Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, being strangers from the covenants of promise. They had no part in them. That legal right to the covenants of promise belonged to Israel alone. Now you have noticed that the Apostle speaks of covenants in the plural, while we generally speak of the covenant, singular. When Paul refers to covenants in the plural, he does not mean to imply that there are many different covenants. The covenant is essentially one. There's only one God who establishes one covenant of grace, with his one people, and that's the covenant of friendship with his people in Christ, our Lord and Savior. But this one covenant of grace is revealed repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and in ever clearer form. So we might say it's one covenant frequently covenanted. It's revealed as the covenant of friendship in paradise, the first, when God promises redemption for the seed of the woman as enmity is set over against the seed of the serpent. That same covenant is more clearly revealed to Noah as that covenant that is established with the whole creation, with the elect at the head, and continuing in the line of Noah's seed. It was revealed to Abraham as the covenant that would continue in his line throughout the generations as an everlasting covenant, coming to definite fulfillment in his seed. And Galatians 3 makes clear that seed is Christ. So the covenant is again revealed to Isaac and Jacob and to all Israel at Sinai, where the children of Abraham are constituted as the commonwealth of Israel, 
And later in still clearer light, it's revealed to the king after God's own heart as the sure mercies of David. One covenant repeated often with the veil of God's revelation lifted more and more throughout the history of the Old Testament to show the magnificence of his gracious dealings with his people. That's how the apostle speaks of covenants. And the covenants revealed exclusively to Israel are called the covenants of promise. Bear in mind, the apostle is writing about the Old Testament time frame when the reality had not yet come in Jesus Christ. And therefore, when all the blessings of salvation and even the covenant itself existed in the shadow, God's people looked forward to the fulfillment But the realization of all things was still in the form of a promise. It was not and is not that the covenant itself is the promise. Sometimes there's confusion over this matter. The covenant itself is the bond of fellowship and love and friendship between God and his people in Christ, which covenant is a reflection of that glorious triune covenant life of God himself. But the full realization of that covenant with the children of Abraham was a matter of promise. The fellowship of friendship could only be enjoyed with God through Jesus Christ and the coming of our Messiah. And therefore, from that Old Testament perspective, It was enjoyed only by laying hold of the promise of that coming Messiah. In addition, even now, after God's covenant has been realized through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and particularly by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, we still wait and hope for the revelation of the blessedness and glory of that covenant relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Even from that point of view, the covenant remains a covenant of promise and will remain such until the tabernacle of God is found with men in the heavenly commonwealth of the new heavens and the new earth. Those covenants of promise, again, had been limited to the commonwealth of Israel. The Gentiles, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, were strangers to those covenants of promise. While the peculiar people of God were receiving these gospel messages and rejoicing in them, the Gentile nations knew nothing about them. They had nothing of a covenant relationship with Jehovah God. But that historical separation was a legal separation because it had been very definitely prescribed and exclusively defined by the law of God. And of that definite separation and limitation of salvation and the covenants of promise, circumcision had been given as the sign. Oh no, this is, and this is where the Jews as a whole had lost touch with biblical reality. It was not as if all the children of Abraham, according to the flesh, were also the children of the promise. Such never was, never will be the case. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, 
in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. There were those many, in fact, who were Israelites in the flesh only. And there were many who boasted of their fleshly circumcision as if their carnal relationship to the commonwealth of Israel had saving significance. As if being a member of the church outwardly had saving significance. They were unbelievers. Right in the midst of the church. For even in the Old Testament, no flesh had any reason whatsoever to glory in the presence of Jehovah God. Salvation was entirely of grace alone. The children of the promise were counted for the seed, none other. It was given to Abraham and his seed, and all those who lived outside the scope of circumcision were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The covenants of promise didn't apply to the Gentiles. They were absolutely separated, strangers to salvation. That was the state of the Gentiles in time past. Far off. And being far off constituted an insufferable misery. They were without Christ. Now obviously this expression demands our careful attention because Paul is speaking of the position of the Gentiles prior to Christ's coming. In the Old Testament, we might understand it more easily if, if he simply spoke of them as being without God, as he also does in the last part of verse 12. But why does he speak in these terms, without Christ? The answer is that Paul is speaking in terms of what all the Old Testament meant and the significance of belonging to the commonwealth of Israel. By those two words, the apostle is giving a general, general review of the whole Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament looks forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. Everything God did with the Jews, all the laws that he gave them, including the laws of circumcision, he did in preparation for and pointing to the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, many of the Jews departing from the gospel went wrong here. They began to look at the law as something in and of itself. They rejected and then forgot the spiritual foundation of the law and began to look only at the outward letter. And in some cases, merely to pick and choose thinking that by obeying the outward precepts, they were saved. Salvation was by their works. So thought those who were only circumcised outwardly in the flesh. But the spiritual children of Abraham understood that the law itself was impossible of fulfillment by them. They looked for another. They looked for the Messiah. The law was the schoolmaster to point them to Christ. So the apostle would remind these Ephesian Christians that they, being outside the commonwealth of Israel, were without Christ. He wants them to realize the greatness of their salvation. 
They had no connection to the Messiah. No claim on him. To put it in terms of the Lord's Supper, they had no right to appear there. No right to God's fellowship as symbolized at the table. Being strangers to the covenants, they were strangers to the promise. They were outside the sphere where the blood of atonement and reconciliation was shed. Outside the sphere of Christ. They had to be reminded of that. And they knew what that meant, too. In the historical sense, our situation is somewhat different. We who've been born in the line of the covenant, and thus who've been from our infancy brought nigh to the blood of Christ by the grace of God, cannot remember the state of alienation from the commonwealth of Israel. The church at Ephesus was much closer to that alienation historically. But we too can remember what it is to be afar off. Because we know what we are by nature. We know what it is to be dead in trespasses and sins. You do, don't you? And we know the spiritual misery and hopelessness of it all. That's what it is to be without Christ. And that knowledge is essential. That's why the apostle calls attention to this insufferable misery. He's speaking, you remember, to those who are saved. But the knowledge of having been far off is critical to their spiritual welfare. And we might say critical to partaking of the Lord's Supper properly, critical to living in God's fellowship. Do you understand why? The church at Ephesus and we must realize that the fact that we are now fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God is the most astounding wonder that could ever touch our lives. We have to see God's exceeding great power in our salvation. It's not only the power that raises us from the death of sin, but that overcomes this tremendous obstacle of how those who were outside the commonwealth of Israel could ever be brought into it. We must understand these things because we will not rejoice in Christ as we should unless we realize what our position was before God worked the wonder work of His grace in saving us. If you don't realize what you were before God took hold of you, you will never praise Him as you ought. You will never stand in awe before Him as you ought. That's why Paul goes into such great detail about this matter. There are many people in the realm of Christendom who really have never seen any need for the Christ of the Scripture. And their lives express nothing of the gratitude to God that's required of a Christian. In some... All that's seen is bitter negativism, even separation from the body of Christ. And the trouble is that deceiving themselves, they think that all is well as they are. 
There's no need for change. That must not characterize the church of Jesus Christ. Paul has prayed that the eyes of our understanding be opened. You were far off in a most miserable state and condition. And as the apostle reminds the church that at that time they were without Christ, he also reminds them that they were without hope and without God in the world. An unspeakably miserable state and condition. Without hope. Is there any expression that conveys greater misery than that? Hopelessness plagues the world in which we live. Without hope. That's what it is to be without Christ. He who is an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, who is a stranger to the covenants of promise and therefore separated from Christ, has no hope at all. That's no exaggeration. The world tries to make it appear different, but it isn't. There is no hope apart from Christ. Man always reaches forward. That's the nature of our being. But the present never satisfies. Nor can it. Do you know why? Because death lingers in every moment of a person's existence. The only way out of this present death is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and life in Him. But lo, Paul says, ye were without Christ and therefore without hope. The expectation of man without Christ perishes. Perishes finally in death, everlasting death. And I would have you young people especially realize that the Christian faith, and particularly the Christian life, is the only religion with hope. You know, sometimes our lack of interest or our lack of concern about world events is interpreted by others that in such a way that they call us pessimistic. That's a misinterpretation. We're not pessimistic. We must not be pessimistic. Because even though we realize the fleeting nature of this life, we look forward to what is everlasting. We stand laying hold by faith on the promises of God. All because of Christ and our life in Him. But when you look at other religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, to mention a couple, they're completely hopeless. Hopeless. Those fantasies lead only to despair. All religions which depart from the revelation of the Scriptures may be the products of profound thinking and ingenious philosophers. They end in hopelessness. What lies beyond death? They don't know. And as they arrive at the end, and all their palaces and towers are collapsing, and 
All their earthly dreams are being sucked away. They have no hope. How many countless millions of people this day think they have life and freedom, deceiving and being deceived, and they have no hope. But even worse, without God, Paul says. What does Paul mean by this? He means they are alone. Alone. They are without a subjective experience and true knowledge of God. They know not his fellowship. He's everywhere. He makes himself known to them by the works of his hands. He meets them wherever they turn. He demands that they worship him and acknowledge him and glorify him and serve him. But they know him not. And all that they see and experience of him is his wrath and death. He's a consuming fire. They don't know him as the covenant God who embraces his people in love. They don't know his embrace. They are without all the joy and peace that comes through the knowledge of him and by faith alone. Without God. Without God in this world of sin and death. What a terrifying, insufferable misery. What a blessed salvation God has given us. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You understand the greatness of your salvation? What a mighty work of God's power and grace. What a blessed contrast between what we once were and what we are now. You were far off, have been brought nigh. You who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel in the past have now been received as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You who were strangers to the covenants of promise have now been included among those with whom God established his everlasting covenant of grace. Made nigh. Brought near. You understand what that means? That means that you who were an enemy of God have been taken by him into the most intimate relationship of fellowship and love. You who were without God in the world may now call him your father. And he's not ashamed to be called your God. He has embraced you with His love. He's taken you into the fellowship of His life and family. He says, come, eat with me at my table. You who were without hope have become heirs of an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled which never fades away. From death, you have been called unto life everlasting. What an amazing place we occupy as Christians. Made nigh. 
brought near, so wonderfully near to God our Savior. Are you filled with a sense of wonder, of love and praise as you think on these things? Do you see the measure of God's love and grace and mercy and of His almighty power? By the blood of Christ has this blessed salvation become ours. There is no other way. By the blood of Christ have we been brought near. Didn't come about by what we have done. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. In Christ is the realization of the covenant of promise. In him we are brought near to God himself, taken into the covenant established with Abraham and his seed. For in Christ, we are the children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise, only in Christ. And through his blood. His blood was the payment for our sins. In that blood there came the end of the law of circumcision, the fulfillment of all righteousness. By that blood, the reconciliation of all whom the Father had given him from before the foundation of the world, not only of Jew, but also of Gentiles, were reconciled unto him. Without blood, there is no remission of sin. Without his blood, there was no life, no hope for you and for me. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Wherefore, remember, lest any flesh should glory in his presence, by grace ye are saved. Amen. Father, we give thanks to thee. We stand in amazement at the wonder of thy grace that we, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, have been made nigh to Thee by the blood of our Lord Jesus and the wonder of Thy grace. Strengthen that in us, by thy word, and also next Sunday morning, if it may be thy will, by the sign and seal of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.